0: Welcome to Post-Normal Times, a podcast for our complex reality and unpredictable world, where stakes are high and innovation is crucial. In this series, I get to sit down with some of my favorite minds to explore new ideas that transcend traditional academic boundaries and address our most pressing needs. I'm Andrew Vasco, Associate Provost and Director of Transdisciplinary Studies at Claremont Graduate University. Welcome to the show. We'd like to welcome our listeners to our podcast today, where we don't discuss business as usual. We discuss business in a transdisciplinary world. And I am very, very happy to be here with our guest, Professor Dion Benson-Smith, who is faculty at Claremont Graduate University in our Applied Gender Studies program, and also faculty at Claremont McKenna College. So she is a good citizen of Claremont, (laughs) uh, active everywhere. Um, And also one of these people who is active outside of the campuses. You are the... okay let me get this right. You are the co-founder of Mothers on the Frontline. Yes. Okay. And you are also the chair of the Reproductive Justice Community IRB. Yes. Okay. Can you explain what both of those things are before I move, move forward?
1: Happily. So um, Mothers on the Frontline is a um, children's mental health justice organization. And so we actually coined the term children's mental health justice. And we focus on children's mental health justice and caregiver justice. And we do that through supplying and I'll talk a lot more about this later supplying um, what we call to be fancy epistemic resources, but um, we have a web page. We do um, community engagements and workshops, and it's an organization that is founded and run by parents, mostly mothers. Three of us of children who have mental health conditions, um, and it's it's not it's meant to both elevate, destigmatize, and to actually really enter into um, talking about the ways in which children's mental health and children's mental health justice and caregiver justice are intertwined. They're mutually dependent. And the ways in which we can actually really engage and function within um, not only institutional context, but also start to disrupt, engage, and redefine um, those relationships. And the RJ community, Mm -hmm. um, IRB, is an IRB that's um, under the auspices of another organization I'm on the board of and co-founder of, which is Interfaith Voices for Reproductive justice. And the RJ Community IRB exist within the communities. So we're the nation's only institutional review board that is situated within the community. There's the Indian tribes that are situated within Indian tribes, um, and then there's us. And, and our function really is threefold. is to um, help with researchers who want to do community-based and community-engaged research Um, with reproductive justice organizations, many of whom we have relationships with. It's also to help our community researchers to produce their own research within the community that will maintain and stay within the community. And it's to build the capacity to do both of these things. Because a lot of the research, particularly research that's done by community organizations within community groups that um, requires or would be good for grants require um, some sort of, of peer review. Mm-hmm. And so this is our way that we um, can help facilitate that peer review in a way that is reflective of community values and also um, helps our community groups and academics kind of work with one another.
0: Okay, so you've got a lot going on. A (laughs) lot. I like that. I like that when you find people who um, don't separate work from life in this way because it's all part of the same thing. Yeah. It's, It's like... It's not like you stop being a researcher or you stop being um, an academic or an intellectual or a teacher um, or an activist or a, a changemaker just when you get out of your car into your office or when you, like those things kind of permeate life.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's I mean, it's really fulfilling and it's challenging as, as you recognize. And to me, um, you know, it, it's much more reflective of, who I am and what I'm trying to do with my PhD, mm-hmm. um, it, it that was always a weird space for me in graduate school, mm-hmm. um, this kind of demarcated, really siloed space. Oh, yeah. As a black woman, it was just impossible for me to, to really disconnect a lot of what was happening in the classroom, what I was actually either pushing up against or actually learning. Um, From my personal experiences, from my experiences, um, my family's experiences, um, and they all started to kind of mesh and blend together. And it took a while for me to really figure out how they could mesh and blend together. Um, And and it's a much more enjoyable existence. It's not necessarily the most lucrative, but it is. is Don't need to tell me that. (laughs) (laughs) It is rewarding. Yeah. In, in a way to be able to to embody and to learn and and to think of having a PhD as this kind of of, of lifelong yes um, arc and yes. not just something that's institutionally dependent.
0: I have some difficulty in my mind when there's conversations around retirement mm-hmm. of like I'm doing this until retirement. I'm doing this and my maybe I'm in a small camp here. I never want to retire. I, I I want my. You know, I might change the way I'm working. I might change the institution or the venue, or I might create my own institution, or however this works. I Mm -hmm. I might be a freelance. I don't know, whatever Mm -hmm. in the end. But it's it's all integrated because the kinds of things that I am and um, the, the me that goes into what I'm doing is just a part. Same. It's it's also a part of the knowledge. It's also a part of the professionalization that was given to me to to get my PhD. And I think that that's becoming more normal in the economies that we're working in mm-hmm. like we're becoming gig workers in yeah. in, in in some ways right yeah. and and i think that um, we have two different versions of a model that we think so we we're still getting into graduate school and we're like well here's how you get your job afterward and here's mm-hmm. how you, and that is true but now we're working into this as well as like here's how you'll get your next 20 jobs yeah <laughs> here's yeah. how you'll make this work when you don't when there's a pandemic for instance and you, right you, like, there's there's so much agility we're, we're having to work with. And a lot of what we do and a lot of what's great about a PhD is it's, it's a capacity build more than anything else, right?
1: I like that. I like that. I, I, one of the things I always tell
0: my graduate students, especially
1: um, the, the very new ones who are just in there, a lot of times I have them in AGS. Um, so that's Applied Gender Studies. Applied for, Gender yeah. Studies. Okay. And it's their very first semester of graduate school so they're in and they're wide eyed and they're like what is this about and um, one of the things I, I, I tell them is to recognize what your superpower is and recognize how it's going to be amped up and mm-hmm. so to me and for me personally one of the things that I've always been a polyglot you talk to my mother I've always absorbed I've read a lot um, and when I got my PhD it was like my brain just expanded and my capacity to absorb information and make connections with what I was absorbing, it seemed like it went on overdrive um, and, and, you know, much to the consternation of my family for some time. <laughs> they're like, stop. <laughs> but that's like my superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I recognize it. I recognize that I can read a lot of stuff and I can make connections and see the connections. And so I'm always telling them that what will happen in this this – rare and and very brief moment when you're in classes um, in graduate school is that you're going to expand in ways Mm -hmm. that you never thought that you could expand. And if you start to to be attuned to the ways in which you're expanding and the ways in which that expansion can help you make connections that's not just institutionally dependent, because you didn't come here as part of an institution. You didn't come here like locked into a program, Mm -hmm. right? When you start graduate school, you came here because most of us, because we had questions that we wanted, to ask we had things that we were passionate about and we wanted a way to kind of apply it and to do it and so i'm constantly trying to encourage them stay connected with that stay connected with the wonder Mm -hmm. um and 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 then you'll start to see how you can
0: make the connections in in different places okay so you've got sage advice (laughs) it's got it must have come from somewhere uh, you've been through the graduate school experience you've talked about that a little bit yourself so can you give some context to us about how you got to be this person who understands not just looking at these things as superpowers it's funny i like to do i like to think of these things as superpowers too it's comic books it's totally comic books when you're a kid i think that should be class 101 is like a comic book reading but what was your mix of academic and life journey that took you to the place of embracing your polyglot and em- embracing this idea that, um, you're not going to retire either. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're, you're, you're in this because this is a, all a part of you.
1: My, well, my first big transformation had nothing to do with sort of the strict academic pathway, right? I was always, um, so I was in all America, played basketball. I was pretty good at it. And, I was always, like I said, I always read a lot. I always did a lot. So I always thought, okay, so I'm going to get this basketball scholarship. And this is a way for me to get to a top-notch university. And then I fell in love with basketball. I went to Notre Dame and I blew my knee out. And it was a life-changing, career-changing injury. I was never able to become the basketball player that I thought I was going to become. I thought I was going to play and people laughed because the WNBA didn't exist in like an actual place. But by the time I graduated from high school in 1989, they had already (laughs) known. They knew that there would be a professional women's basketball league that would be started up. And so that cohort that you saw that um, populated the early WNBA, Mm -hmm. we were all college basketball players. We were all top-notch college basketball players. So the talk was there, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. That would be so cool, and it would be cool to do that and then maybe travel to Europe. So I had this whole idea about what I would do, and then it all came to a crash. And then I was at Notre Dame, and it's like, okay, so you're here. What can you do and, and what can you, how can you take this opportunity to explore the things that you love? And so I started taking classes that I could never take as an athlete. Um, I started interacting with professors and that kind of kicked in this kind of making connections and making transitions that would really help me in what I consider to be one of the more painful periods of my professional career. And that was when I stepped away from my tenure track job at Grinnell College and came here um, for a lot of reasons. It wasn't working for my family. And then I came here on a postdoc. To scripts And it was right about that time when the economy crashed the first time. Mm-hmm. And I was in political science, and I thought, I'm going to do political science. And really, it's out of this necessity again, out of this kind of crash of having to pivot. I've always, always kind of, as a political scientist, secretly read black feminism. And my <laughs> dissertation infused <laughs> black feminism, but it was not a place, well, like, okay, that's well, not political yeah, science.
0: I was going to say, can you explain that? Because, and I am outside of political science, mm-hmm. and... I'd imagine that there's got to be some kind of political philosophy that would go on, and black feminism should fit into political philosophy, into political science, should it not?
1: It should. It doesn't. Full disclosure, when I was at the Maxwell School, one of the reasons why I chose the Maxwell School in the first place is because it pegged itself as an interdisciplinary space. Mm -hmm. Um, That only meant, really, that I took some classes in econ, and you had to take some classes. Um, And then you, you had to take two classes outside the Maxwell School and I chose the only department that would house me, which was philosophy.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I took my two classes with Linda Alcoff. And that was probably, if you think about where I am now, that was that kind of sea change for me. So I'm I'm in the philosophy cl- um, department taking a class on race and philosophy, reading Stuart Hall, reading people that I've never been exposed to in political science. And I don't think if you, I mean, it would be very difficult in a lot of departments for people to be exposed to that in political science. Political science is a discipline that is very much focused on one, a quantitative way yeah. of, and a positivist way mm-hmm. of analyzing and engaging with the world. There's not a whole lot of philosophy mm, in it. Okay. And the philosophy that's there. I would say that there's not a lot of the sort of of engaged, reflexive way, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's an assumption we have to learn. Of course, we have to learn about political philosophy. We have to learn about Hobbes. We have to learn about Rousseau. But really why and how that actually really is engaged with how we ask questions and what and how the discipline is structured, sometimes it happens, but it's not. It has to be a deliberate and intentional um, conversation on the part of the professor. It's not kind of in this overarching way of the discipline. So for me, after taking the Alcoffs class, I started working with Alcoff secretly. <laughs> and I'm doing right. all this reading and this work with her. And, and um, I was writing a really good dissertation on Congress and filibuster. And I could tell you a lot about filibuster and filibuster and race. And I literally was crying the entire time. <laughs> I write like turn the pages into my chair and it's like these are good pages and I'm like I know but it's I don't wanna do this. <laughs> and so between Linda and my chair, um, Grant Reher, they were like, You don't wanna do this, then what do you wanna do? Because whatever you're gonna do and however you're gonna do it, this is who you're gonna be for mm-hmm. the next like five to ten years. I was like, I wanna write something about black women, I wanna write something that reflects my experience because I'm in public policy. We're coming off of 1996 welfare reform at the time. And there are a lot of assumptions, even within my own discipline, Mm -hmm. that we were making with regard to, you know, black women, black women's motivations, women who are in welfare, their motivations. And, And I did not see at that time our discipline which really, if you think about some of the theories that we have in political science, I'm an institutionalist that could really answer this and really do it in in a systemic way. We weren't. And I was like, I really want to do that. And so much to the credit of my chair, he said, go ahead and do it. That's what saved me when I got here and everything had dried up with respect to political science for me. Um, There weren't a lot of openings in political science departments. California worked very well. I have a trans, you're talking about transdisciplinarity. I have a transnational biracial family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there aren't a lot of places that an African American and Russian family blended in all these ways could exist where my kids could actually grow up and kind of feel slightly normal. So we knew we were not going to leave. The question was, how can I stay here, do the work that I really love doing, which is research and teaching and everything, and do it in a way that's sustainable. And it turned out that it was not political science for me. I could not find a position in many political science or gov departments. It actually was in gender studies and Mm -hmm. that dissertation that little nugget of a dissertation, is what really allowed me to start having this kind of conversation around gender and, and feminism, which I think is just inherently an interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary space.
0: Yeah, a lot, of, um, a lot of evolutions of disciplines come out in this really interesting way where you see people like you, <laughs> where you see people who understand that there are bounds that have taken on some kind of, of tradition that are rather ossified. like mm-hmm. Things are stuck this way. And for better or worse, it doesn't mean that a field is bad. Mm-hmm. And there is some kind of movement in the field. But when the ossification happens, that movement is slow. Yeah. And the, the most movement that ends up happening doesn't come from something like theory. It usually comes from technology. It usually comes from our, our preoccupation with how to do the, the newest kind of data analysis. Mm-hmm. And so we're asking similar kinds of questions with different methodolo- methodological means. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even and say methodological because sometimes there's no logic. Sometimes it's just methods. Right. <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's just methods. But it's 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 kind of like getting a faster car always mm-hmm. and what you needed was a boat. You know, it's like, no, it's not a road issue. It's a, it's a it's, we flooded now. We need boats now. Yeah. And I think that that theory thing is what births new disciplines. But that disciplinary birth space is interesting because when it first starts, like a, a field like gender studies or we get like when education became a field because it wasn't a field itself for a while. When when a lot of these areas become fields, they start off in this completely Star Trekky space to go mm-hmm. nerdy. And it is this new frontier. And, and it is itself at this leading tip of a transdisciplinary edge. And it's exciting because they're creating knowledge in uncharted space. But then what ends up happening over time is because we're still in a disciplinary world, is it becomes an interdiscipline. Yeah. And it becomes – it has its own journals, which is is great. It has its own um, customs. It has its own degree programs. It has its own outcomes. It has its own – Cultures. Mm -hmm. It has the people you should talk to and the people you shouldn't talk to anymore. And it starts getting the artifacts and it starts ossifying itself. And then you see another bud come. And so you see an evolution of disciplines that go from like beginning and then, I mean, it takes a while to Mm -hmm. get to something very, very established. But you can see if you look across like an entire catalog of disciplines where they might be in their process. You're like, okay, you are an established. You're very ossified. (laughs) fine because you know what there's never a shortage of knowledge from there and one of the things we do in those ossified spaces that is a crime of ours is we forget the classic stuff and pretend that it didn't matter and so much knowledge is still to be rediscovered Mm -hmm. from that so i'm not against that but then we're also because we're going through our own evolutionary process in this in this kind of academic institutional way you can see like that yeah Gender studies is more on that tip still. Mm-hmm. Like it's still burgeoning. And that's the fun of working in that space. It is. It, it is. But, but I get in a lot of conversations with people who will say like, oh, well, what I'm doing is already at the tip. Why do I need to collaborate with anyone? Why do I need to learn new perspectives? And my counter argument is like, no, because you're at the tip, mm-hmm. that's the definition you're still establishing these things. So you you never stop collaborating. You never stop looking outward. Right. It's like you, you're you trying to balance the institutionalization of your field mm-hmm. with the need to bring in all of these diverse spaces to make it even better before yeah. the ossification happens, because it's going to happen. And it's not bad. It's never bad that something ossifies. It's just the reality. So then when folks like us come into this, so I, I'm a neuroscience person from the background, oh, which is, yeah. yeah, right? Like there's nothing that's that's... Not fascinating within neuroscience. It's totally <laughs> fascinating. But there are things that I learned when I got into this field that I'm like, wait, this is how it works when you publish? You're right. This is this is who I have to be nice to at a conference. <laughs> this is this is the kind of postdoc I need to get. And those kinds of things are what become more n- cultural norms mm-hmm. in the disciplinary kind of acculturation and when I did that and I'm like but I think deep down I'm kind of a humanist mm-hmm. like that doesn't go well together uh, so you know how did I get involved you know from this hardcore molecular neuroscience mm-hmm. into you know teaching about medical ethics as, as the other side of it and then fitting into a transdisciplinary space right. and I think the end that I always I, I tell people who are talking to me one-on-one is you can't not be who you are yeah. Like it's going to come out one way or another. And so if you're like deeply a humanist and you're in a scientific field, then you've got this amazing opportunity to contribute to one of these new burgeoning things or mm-hmm. you can make it yourself. And I think that that's part of the fun. Part of the fun about being in Claremont, honestly, yeah. it's part of the fun about being at CGU is because you have all of these programs that have bud up like this. And yeah. so you're in these spaces where not a lot of people have ever been and you get to dictate what happens.
1: This is, I. it's funny because you said you can't, be who you are. And so one of my co-founders at Mothers on the Frontline, and she's also my collaborator, I call her my partner in crime, is Is Tammy Knighton. She's actually a graduate of the CGU philosophy department. So somewhere in mid that we graduated around the same time. And and we were on faculty together at Grinnell College. So we were both young faculty members. Um, and one of the things that we always laugh about is that I sort of mentioned feminism to her, Right. And, and, you know, I thought, oh, philosophy. All I knew about philosophy, by the way, was feminism, (laughs) feminism and critical race theory. I didn't realize I thought like everybody was doing that, because that was what I was doing with alcohol, right? So like, everybody's doing this all around the country. So, you know, you're a philosopher, let me hit you up. So what do you think about Stuart Hall and blah, blah, blah? And she's like, that's totally not what I'm doing. And the other thing she said was um, – I said, well, I went to an interdisciplinary program and I explained what interdisciplinary was. She's like, mm, no, that's not really what we mean. And she actually described what is transdisciplinary and then kind of struck up this friendship. She always describes me as a philosopher. She's like, at heart, you realize you're a philosopher. And I'm like, I am not a philosopher. And, you know, I flunked philosophy at Notre Name, It was required. Uh, the professor was a priest, and he said that women can't think, and so you couldn't
0: think above. <laughs> That's a great way to start. <laughs> it Jeez. Was.
1: It's like nobody—if you're a woman, you're not getting above a C, and so I got a, you know, C plus or something like that, which was actually good for a woman, I guess. But I never thought of myself as a philosopher. I never thought of myself as a person who was really thinking about theory all of the time, and in the spaces. So who I am and what I'm always thinking about is theory and frameworks. We at Mothers on the Front Line, we have this framework. is a children's mental health justice framework that we develop. And it is a development that came about from our reflexivity and reflecting on our own experiences as mothers. So it's me, myself, Angela Riccio, who is the only non-academic and and really thinking about how our personal experiences as as parents of children who have mental health conditions interacting with the various institutions that we have to interact with medicine we have to interact you know, culturally, um, with our family, with church, how that actually is, um, how that has an effect not only on our own mental health and well-being as caregivers, but also the agency that we have as parents and the agency that our children have and what that means for mental health overall. And it's inherently transdisciplinary, but at the end of the day, this framework is a philosophy, right? And so who I am, I think I am, I'm going to say this for the first time publicly, yeah, I think I am, and I always have been attracted to the philosophic frameworks, the things of the why of why we do what we do, and how we understand that, right? And then political science gave me probably, I think, one of the best trainings and method. Mm-hmm. Um, that focus on positivism, but also that focus on quantitative, the method, yeah. methodology. It's always about the method, like not. And, and it's not,
0: hard and important to it do is. A good method. Yeah. It
1: is, and but it was it, it it really prepared me in a way, I think, to start to have these kind of conversations within the community and conversations even within my own organizations and how I teach, right? That really start to look at the how and the why. I mean, political science is really about why are you doing it how is it being done how are you proving it how are you describing and I still ask these questions I might ask them of theory I might ask them of a particular politician I'm a lot of times I'm asking it about policy and what we're trying to do with with particular policies but I think those two I don't know if there's a thing I mean is that a person is there a, a, a position like philosophy I don't <laughs> I think I don't. I wouldn't there, know there, what the job description is for that.
0: There was a movement in philosophy for experimental philosophy for a while. I know uh, about, um, but that's more my kind of training because <laughs> it's like laboratory setups. For it, it was like a. I looked at it as a form of neuroscience. To be honest, it was more like a cognitive neuroscience kind of thing. But I do think that those things are coming up all the time. And I think that when you make a change in the framework, it's like you've changed which railroad track you're on now. Mm -hmm. So you can still continue moving, but you're now chartering new territories. Mm -hmm. And that's such an important thing to do. And I got, I'm full of metaphors, you can tell. Um, And that's one of the ways I like to speak. In science, I think you know that term, standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. And that's proudly the tradition I came from, and that's kind of the way that we perform humility in the sciences. Like, no, it's not me. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And, <laughs> that's also in Black feminism. Each one, teach one. <laughs> like and, to, well, time. yes, but because standing on the shoulders of giants is is also it feeds into the notion that what you're here to create is a gap in the literature. Is to I fill see. a gap in the literature. I see. And. Teaching others isn't necessarily because there's a gap in the literature. That could be 360 degrees. But imagining if you're standing on the shoulders of a giant and you've got a very tall Jenga, you know, stack that's that's going very high, but that giant is oriented 180 degrees the wrong way for where all the action is uh, on the other side. So you might be standing on the shoulders of a giant. And you might know exactly what's going on in the horizon in that direction. But what about behind you? What about yeah. these other directions? And I think that's the thing that the transdisciplinary space allows for us to do mm-hmm. is to say, like, you don't have to stop standing on that sh- on those shoulders. They're very important. But what if we changed the paradigm and said, like, what if you decided to go back to the ground level and look around the, under- the other degrees in that circle to understand what are we missing? What's the foundation that giant is standing on that maybe is not the foundation that the land, the rest of us are standing on anymore that's, that's interesting. changed?
1: Yeah, I never thought about it that way. I always thought about the transdisciplinary space. And I guess that goes back to your early question about how you know I got in this space is always being an inherently intersectional space, right? Yeah. Again, mothers on the front line, the work that I do with repro- reproductive justice, right? So the whole reproductive justice framework, which no, I did not <laughs> coin, I did not frame. I have speaking of standing on the shoulders of giants, um, but I'm lucky enough, right, to to engage. And we actually, um, Dr. Tony Bond, who was at Claremont CST, Claremont School Psychology, of Theology, yeah. when it was still across the street, I had the the just wonderful luck. I mean, that's. It's more than luck. It's met, It's a lot of things. She's the co-founder also of IVRJ, but she's also one of the founding mothers of the reproductive justice movement and one of the early coiners of RJ and, and the reproductive justice framework. And she happened to take my class across the street um, because she was like, we could take a class on methods or we can like learn a new language and you're teaching this feminist methods class. And we became friends. And so in thinking about like the work that she does, the work that I was doing, It was always this sort of this intersectional space, right? And this intersectional space where if I could like draw it out for you, how I imagine my work in that intersectional space is that black feminism and being a black woman, right? So the embodiment of all the things that people pour into and say about black women, black women's bodies, black women's, you know, minds, black women's positionality, and then how that spokes out into economics. And where I can look in, in econ theory, and I do when I teach my social policy class, and I can look at economic theory um, about utilitarianism and, and what are the assumptions that we make about utilitarianism and then how does that play out in the yeah. assumptions that we make about the behavior yeah. of a person who is on public assistance and yeah. where does that break down? So I like that because now I'm going to think about giants, but I, I always thought of it as sort of this flattened space of more networks and the networking that's kind of going through.
0: That's also part. Of- of it. I mean, that's the fun of it, is you realize that knowledge exists when you transcend above the discipline. That's the transdiscipline. Mm-hmm. So when you transcend above the discipline, imagine like if, if you're going to be Superman, if that's your superpower, Superwoman, is <laughs> your superpower, then um, now you can twirl around and do a 360 degree view, mm-hmm. but you're also seeing it as a bird would see it. And you'll see the connections, but you'll also see the, the foundation you had been standing on. Yeah. Uh, So it's because it transcends. And that's one of the differences between maybe an interdisciplinary way of looking at things Mm -hmm. and a transdisciplinary is that you look at the discipline itself – as the product of almost like a sociological or an anthropological exercise. Yeah. As you you do with political science, as you say, well, it comes from a positivist tradition or like these kinds of things. When you start to do that, you're adding, I I call it disciplinary awareness, that (laughs) when you're doing some kind of reflexivity, you start with an individual and that's why positionality is so important (laughs) and those intersectional identities. But what if you grow that bubble around you and realize that one of the identities that you're now deeply entrenched in is the disciplinary one. Yes. And that disciplinary identity comes from another tradition, it comes from another, you know, set of norms and and things. So you need to become disciplinarily aware of what's going on at the same time. And this is one of the problems that I think so many people have trying to work with people from other disciplines, is that we don't pay attention to these disciplinary awarenesses. And so when you want the economist trying to talk to the psychologist, there's so much that overlaps. Mm -hmm. And yet, there's like, no, this is how we do things. This is our definition. And this is, this is wrong. This <laughs> <laughs> like, not yes, right. It's, well, <laughs> it, it, it almost creates a And and it's very best, those that understand how to kind of navigate those spaces, then they have this inclination to bridge build. And that's Mm -hmm. what the transdisciplinary version of that looks like. So your foundation might be economics, your foundation might be psychology. And if you've got this transdisciplinary inclination, you can take that, you can be your superhero, you can fly up above it and you can build a bridge. If you're deeply disciplinary, then you burrow. Yeah, and borrowing is okay as long as you don't literally ostrich yourself mm-hmm. and pretend that the rest of this isn't existing, or say this is wrong or this yeah. is stupid. And obviously, I have, I have a, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble from a lot of people. I think. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just letting I'll it. I'll follow out. you. I'm, I'm letting it all out. It. Um I'm being, I'm being probably uh, a little on the critical side of this mm-hmm. because I think there's, you really do need a balance of all of these things. I'm just saying that where we need to kind of create the balance is adding more to the transdisciplinary side.
1: I think you're right. And I I, I mean, you said a couple of things. um, And I want to go reach back to reflexivity in one minute. Um, because this comes up because i do a lot of work with people who are still entrenched in disciplines which gets me to the second point about this bridge building right and so i think in this trans like transdisciplinarity what it gives you is not only bridge building but you if you you're coming from a discipline space right so coming from political science which is so heavily i mean this is the other thing that's comical to me is that disciplines pretend like their disciplines are not inherently like the things that we hold on to and we hold very tight are also coming from disciplines, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. we've just sort of forgotten Mm -hmm. the origin of it. So Mm -hmm. we've forgotten the origins of what we do um, in political science that comes from philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. It's not until you talk to a philosopher and they're like, oh, no, 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 Plato and Hobbes. And in political theory, it happens like this. And so one of the funniest things that happened to me that kind of exploded this for me was when I very started very first started teaching um, and I was at Grinnell College and I had the introduction to political science class. And I'm like, rational choice theory. So I'm talking about <laughs> rational choice theory. I'm like, OK, so here we're going to get into rational choice theory. And so um, second week, this um, person raises his hand and he said, you know, and he was really serious. He's like, Professor, you keep saying rational choice theory. It's like, yeah, it's rational choice theory. And I'm tell you, he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm an econ major and he had waited until his junior year or I think he may have been a senior to come back and, you know, fill in um, the rest of his requirements or the rest of what he needed to graduate. He says, I'm an econ major. I went to my macro book. I went to my micro book and I keep looking for rational choice theory, right? I keep looking and looking and looking. Nowhere does it say (laughs) rational choice theory. Why? Because we talk about rational actors all the time. Oh, because it's not a theory in your discipline. It's like the basis. It's, it's like the uh, break off yeah. from yeah. us. And now I'm going to get in trouble because I'm sure some econ people are like, that's not true. It's like the <laughs> it's like the break off from what was theoretical for us is now this sort of basis. And that's sort of how I see yeah. sometimes disciplines evolving. Yeah. It's sort of like a branch. It's like, okay, we're going to lop this part off. Yeah. And then I'm going to run with it. Yeah. And this is now like the the seed yeah. that we're growing from. Yeah, that's right and transdisciplinary work if you come from a discipline sometimes what you can do is you can do that bridge work because you can it's like oh yeah i recognize that's right where this comes from and 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 now i also recognize what you're talking about and so now we can kind of talk to one another right um and we can kind of build from there and start to look at you know what what the comparisons are, like, you know, apples to apples. Like, we both have apples. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> who knew? And they're, who knew? <laughs> we both like apples. Yeah. Your apple might be green. Mine is red. But they're both apples. Yeah. Like, what else do we have? And start to kind of build from there yeah. into something else. And I think that that is what builds, as you were saying, these new theories, right? Yeah. The things that burgeon out of that, right? Yeah. Um, once we know that there are different types of apples. Yes, Um, And not all different apples are just different fruit. They're actually different apples. There's different fruit and, you know.
0: And they do and when you start making these new hybrids or when you start making these kind of integrated versions of an apple, then they also have so much more the degrees of freedom of use becomes much greater. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't just have to feed people who like red apples. It doesn't just have to feed people who like green apples. Now you can feed everybody. yeah and, and that's the kind of thing that we think about of what is this knowledge that we're creating or this knowledge we're discovering or this knowledge that we're integrating or however we're, we're translating that knowledge or, or uncovering that knowledge for what? Yeah. Like, that's the other question with the transdisciplinary side of things. It's like, okay, knowledge for its own sake is good. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and? And. And I think, you know, this program you're very involved with, Applied Gender Studies, the Applied Knowledge, is right. that is something that's that's becoming more of a common theme, that people who are going to school want their knowledge to be applied in a way that is is bettering society, that has got some functionality to it, Researchers are starting to do more of this. When you look at it, like, I came from the world of NIH grants. Like, when you look at NIH grants, they're like, we call it translation. Like, you know, what is this going to go into? Mm -hmm. How is this going to affect people immediately or at least give us a space? And I'm seeing more and more of this in my career. When I started, it wasn't as much. I was like knowledge for knowledge's sake and, you know, this this kind of idealized romantic idea of the, I'm not going to say it, but I'm going to say it, the ivory tower, you know. (laughs) Um, And I love an ivory tower. (laughs) I mean, it's it's so nice to imagine that I can go to a sanctuary and all I can do is think. And a library, you know, a, a library like, is gorgeous. I, think, yeah, I love, I love getting lost in a library. It's I one of my favorite things academic. to do. <laughs> yeah, that's like right.
1: that's probably that that was the catch was the library.
0: Yeah, libraries are magical. <laughs> yes, but but at the same time, there was always that point of where I don't know if you had the existential crisis. You're like, does anybody care what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. Who's gonna Who's gonna What does this matter? What does this matter? And understanding how to turn what we're doing into things that matter is also a skill that you can cultivate. And that's something that an applied program really emphasizes. Yeah. And it's so important. What has it been like for you teaching in applied gender studies?
1: It's been actually, it's, it's truly been one of the more liberating experiences. Um, and, and I mean, I cannot say enough wonderful things and give enough thanks to to Linda Perkins for even offering me the opportunity because for a long time, and it's not, this is going to sound bad, so I have to figure out a way to say it. I think
0: we're have a lot for a lot of those sounding bad so far. Well, in gender
1: (laughs) studies, in feminist studies, I mean, if you come from a discipline like um, political science, you really have to kind of get the stink of the discipline off of you because people associate political science, particularly in feminism and gender studies, as a discipline in a much, I mean, this is my experience at NWSA. This has been my experience in going into departments. It's like, yeah. So you're in political science. So you're a quantitative person. And so they were they associate it with hostility, right? Okay. And so you, there is there was a barrier for me, even working with Alcoff, um, in getting my foot in the door to even teach in. Um, Gender studies. I mean, this will tell you like the sort of of 180. When I came here and I had the fellowship at Scripps College, I was in the government department. Within three years of of working over here at um, CGU, when I went back to teach at Scripps, I was teaching in FGSS. What is FGSS? Uh, feminist, gender, and sexuality oh, interesting. studies. Okay, okay. When I had originally applied yeah. to teach in FGSS yeah. from moving from the government department, when a visiting um, position opened up, they, I never they wouldn't even look at me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, it, there's so much of an idea of what political science is and, and what that means for anybody coming out of political science. So what meant being in, in applied gender studies is there's just two things. This has allowed me and has given me the space pedagogically um, to to explore and to open up those connections that we were talking about between the discipline, but that applied part of it was the first place that I could say when I was going out because I'd already been doing. Activist work and I'd already been doing community work. But it's really weird, like what you name something. It's like, oh, well, I'm part of applied gender studies. Like, okay, sit down. Talk to me a little bit more. Um, Tell me a little bit more about the type of work that you do. And this is definitely one of these instances of really learning what it means and how to articulate who I am as I was doing it. Right. So right about the time that I started teaching, I think it may have been the second or third year I was teaching here in applied gender studies. I started doing work with black women for wellness, which is in, it's a reproductive justice organization in Los Angeles there in Leimert park. And I was doing some fibroids research and being in applied gender studies and looking at this from an applied way, right. Um, even in my own mind turned this key that, okay, this relationship needs to be much more than the transactional relationship, an mm-hmm. extractive relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Where I mean, Black Women for Wellness gets approached a lot by researchers because they have one of the largest reproductive justice organizations, but they have one of the largest organizations of Black women. So they have their their membership is a treasure trove sure. yep. to any researcher who wants to do research with black women. So if you think about maternal child health, you think, think about anything that affects black women from the NIH standpoint all the way through to, you know, what we do, melon work. You really want to have this kind of relationship. And Jan Robinson Flint had become very skeptical of relationships with academics because it's extractive, Mm -hmm. right? So what are you going to give us? What are you going to do with us? And I was like, well, I'm with the Applied Gender Studies Program. She's like, well, what does that mean? And so when you're in the community, it's it's really humbling when you do community work because they don't care. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't care like, oh, I have a PhD in neuroscience or I have a PhD in political science, and I really, you know, they don't care. Mm -hmm. They're like, what does that mean? Yeah. For us, right? What does that mean? You have a PhD, and Jan Robinson Flint said this. She's like, You have a PhD and you're working in applied gender studies. What are you doing for us? And what do you do? And how is that going to work with us? And so, having that space here to actually ask that question, and some of my early Experiences in teaching, I was just asking our students, you're in applied gender studies. Why were you attracted to applied gender studies? What do you think applied gender studies means? What do you think that means for the type of work that you want to do with the MA? What do you think that means for the work that you want to do with the um, certificate? Like, you're getting the certificate. Why? And this kind of very basic. Real conversation with students is what really helped me to start to articulate what this means, what it means to apply something that is so esoteric if you think about it. It really does have this kind of patina of theory, and that even is in the um, community space, right? Most people think anybody who's coming out of academia who is doing anything that has to do with feminism must be doing only theory, and so I started asking our students and we started talking about like how do we articulate this space and then how are we going to utilize the theories that we're learning here to actual policies, actual programs, actual interests. How do we do this translation? And a lot of the early classes, and even now, my classes are really about this translational space. And that's what I think we do well. We, as in me and Linda in AGS, is really pushing students to do this kind of translational work and then giving them the space. Because a lot of times we just don't have the space to do this.
0: You know, in the interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary (coughs) worlds, I I say transdisciplinary and I love transdisciplinary. I also love interdisciplinarity. I think it's not any less, I think it's got a very important space to hold as well. But it it was an interdisciplinary conference and the, a presentation was made talking about what NSF calls convergence science, mm. which is this integrate. Everyone's got a different name for these kinds of things. There's- I love convergence. Yeah, convergence science is a great name. But, but what kind of worker is going to be needed most in the future? What's mm. one of the skill sets that, that's missing most that people aren't talking about? And it's the translator. And this is coming out of the, the transdisciplinary work. Because in transdisciplinary work, like you said, you want to work with community organizations. You want to work with people outside of the discipline because you're working on problems that affect society. Mm-hmm. And so and, and and people who might not have a lot of access to those researchers or people who always have access to those researchers, but the point is you're kind of Coming down off your your typical position of hierarchy as a researcher, and you're integrating now the knowledges from the different groups you're working with, as well as the academic knowledge that you're bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. So when you're trying to get stuff done and make it a sustainable solution or a sustainable answer, that's the way to do it. Yeah. That's like, it works better than someone telling you what to do because you miss the context, right, completely if you're working in a local space and you have no idea of what that context is. So what ends up being the most important person in that group or the most important skill set is translation. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have it, that's the that's the bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Like literally, when you when you're watching some show of people who might be working with a pre-industrial tribe, like the translator is the person who controls everything, right? You know, or the, or if you're in a foreign country and you've got a tour guide, or like we understand it that way. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it in terms of academia, we're we're kind of like, oh, hold on, I'll speak slower and louder, <laughs> and you'll understand <laughs> yes. it. You know, so yeah, th- I've been that person. Th- th- the same the same <laughs> approach, but. It's it's the skill of translation is such a big deal. And that's part of what this applied thing is that you're talking about that I love is you learn that that research is and and the knowledge that we come from that to be integrated into other knowledges mm-hmm. requires that you are, you become bilingual almost yeah. that, you, that you that you get these other skills of saying like what matters what reality is this what epistemologically if we're going to go there mm-hmm. um, what is the truth that we need to share the same space around so that we can make things happen mm-hmm. and when you start to add we, we need to make things happen it allows you to think creatively it allows you to play with each other in this new space whereas if you don't say like what what is this truth or what is a shared space then you take on the burden of having to be the truth yeah. and that's not a good position for any of us to be in as human beings and i think all of our guts secretly know inside that we're not going to do that very well like Mm-mm. if we're going to do it we're going to keep faking it till we make it because <laughs> we
1: are never going to make it if we uh, <laughs> we'll Yeah yeah, yeah the we'll truth, never right. make it
0: it's impossible to be the holder of truth we have a lot of ideas around you know we we understand evidence mm-hmm. we understand standards of evidence but even that as you said is based on a rational actor theory <laughs> 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 which was a branch taken from somewhere else that mm-hmm. didn't represent all the truth so mm-hmm. You're really getting a picture of a picture of a picture. So when you start to have to retranslate, and it makes you zoom out more when you're doing that, then you start to see that disciplinary space. Then mm-hmm. you start to see how other knowledges can sit outside of academics. So you get a situated knowledge, or you get you get a um, a localized, you get indigenous knowledges, mm-hmm. you get um, positional knowledges. These these things that all come back disciplinary is different disciplinary knowledges. Right. It's like loving loving pinball and then suddenly walking into an arcade. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like you see this whole thing is it's just so fun. You can you'll never stop being involved with asking questions and having impact. And that applied piece is so important and it's so cool and the world needs it. So I'm glad you're doing that kind of work and having that experience. What the class has turned into because of applied gender
1: studies is we spent a good amount of time on how do we create this space. How do you create the space in your head, reflexivity? reflexivity, being very reflexive about your practice, being reflexive about your positionality. Why are you here? Why are you asking the questions that you're asking? By being reflexive and being intentional with these questions, this creates this kind of space to have this kind of conversation. And then how do we open up this space? So we have this conversation transdisciplinary, like a transdisciplinary conversation, a transinstitutional conversation, because that's what you're doing when you're doing community engaged work. You're doing this work where you're taking you know, there's all this institutional practices, institutional policies, all of these things that if you are a graduate student, you get a Ph.D., you think about how long we spent in institutions of higher education, mastering the institutional knowledge and just how to navigate the institution. Um, and some of it is great, but a lot of it is not going to be applicable if we're doing community work or if we're doing work with, um, in Congress. And so then how do we create this space and what are the methods that we need to actually create a space to open up so that people can start telling you about their positionality? So people can tell you their like we do storytelling work. People start to tell you their story. Um people start to, to tell you and, and really talk about their institution and what they've observed, right, and then how we can share. And so the class is really, that's the method to me. And then the added part because of the IRB work is now what are the ethics involved in doing this type of work? And one of my students this semester, who um, took the class, the feminist methods class and took it because but they're in the humanities. And honestly, a lot of what I think about with ethics, I mean, almost all of the ethics right for IRB is either coming from I mean, you have to do something with live right. research participants. So right. it's either like focused on people in the social sciences or people in the by, um the physical sciences, biological science, the bioethics or research ethics. It never occurred to me until she was sitting in a class and she just had this kind of <gasps> and she did that. She's like, oh my gosh, this really applies to humanists. And I said, how so? And so she started talking and another one of my students started talking about, you know, like the research ethics and and these sort of ethics of asking questions, consent, engagement. We don't really ask these questions when we are talking to people for documentaries. Mm-hmm. It's not really oh, something. Yeah that people really engage with, even when you're doing research for your fiction, it's not engaged with, you know, this was a historian. She's like, but we don't talk about the ethics of reading somebody's oral histories or reading somebody, Mm -hmm. right? And then I write and I'm telling this person's story. They're not around and I'm, I'm interpreting who they are. And we don't talk about the ethics behind that, particularly when we're talking about Groups and people whose stories have been marginalized, like their their positionality, their situatedness, is not part of the theories and the practices of the discipline that I come from. Right, so I'm now I'm going to take that and I'm going to read the story of. We went to an opera a month ago, um, and there was a, this story was um, on Omar bin Said, right, who was a slave enslaved person from. Benin, and they people read their they read his story and created an opera from it and there's so many like problems and issues. this person is not alive I mean this is you know antebellum days, and so my student was like. I've never thought about this. Mm-hmm. Like, what would be the ethics and what do I have to consider? What do I have to consider with respect to my own positionality? What do I have to consider with respect to my disciplinary constraints when I go to read somebody else's life and reinterpret it yes. in the context
0: of this discipline? And I was
1: like, oh, my gosh. That's a that like, cool
0: breakthrough. Yeah, I'll have to yes. think about that, too. One of the things you mentioned that got me thinking about when you were doing community kind of based research uh, was something that reminded me of teaching and trying to evolve this concept and how it fits into the transdisciplinary world of when you're working with communities or when you're working with non-academic actors as part of your research team, that I would start to, and I've gotten better at this, I've, I've done a kind of wobbly job and I, I, I think it's becoming more clear to me and more important, is teaching a unit on allyship. I was teaching a course in the summer of 2020 when people wanted to talk about what was going on in the world and specifically in the United States in 2020. And so I definitely remember when and there was a call to action of tell people how to be allies mm-hmm. and then there were these like <laughs> top 10 lists kind of coming out the listicles of how to be an ally and I'd read them and I'd be like this isn't very critically thinking anything mm-hmm. out this is just like I don't want to say it's lazy allyship <laughs> it's just it's limiting to mm-hmm. what allyship is so I started doing reading on it quite a bit and it fits so well with what this transdisciplinary idea is because they come from the same space. Mm-hmm. That when you're an ally, you have to take into account histories and positions of power. Like yeah. you, have to, you have to take in this positionality question. And what you have to do is understand that your job is to create some kind of relational collaboration with mm-hmm. the group. That means you have to become entrustable. You have to become ontologically in the same living space so that you understand what reality is. Epistemically or epistemologically. You have to understand what truth feels like in this space. Mm -hmm. You have to understand axiologically the values that exist in this space. Mm -hmm. So you don't do this from a top 10 list. Mm -mm. You do this because you're in this for the long haul. And that's how we establish that you're an ally of me now because you understand my reality and you understand my truth and you understand my values in a way that I can entrust you because I don't want to be watching your back all the time to do these kinds of things. But that's also what an academic researcher needs to do when it, they're working with a community. Yeah. And so these concepts that we put like a method of of feminism mm-hmm. actually is a very valid method. Those kinds of methods are really important for for us to understand how do we work with people in these Other spaces that that don't have the same artificial construction that we do of the ivory tower, whatever we like to believe this is. And so I think that there is a real clear line between the translatability of Mm -hmm. these things in lots of different paradigms. And they can exist within one that might be called black feminism or gender studies, but it could also be in a paradigm of community-based research. Or it can be in in any kind of research collaboratory environment, because it makes us expand our frameworks for understanding of how we live together as people. Mm -hmm. And if we don't acknowledge that, then we think what we're doing is working in rational actor space. (laughs) Yeah,
1: and that's you said something that that there's two things. When you're talking about epistemologies, right? And I love the fact that you said epistemologies, right? So there's these different ways of knowing and there's, there's different ways of accessing knowledge. And there's also different ways of communicating knowledge. And so through Mothers on the Front Line, we have a whole workshop and we call it What's in Your Refrigerator. It's a workshop that is designed for parents of children and largely mothers of children who have mental mental health challenges on how you talk to the doctors, like how are you gonna interact? And so the, the like the tagline is how you interact, how to tell your story in a way that preserves your agency and your dignity and the agency and dignity of your child, right? So that it's heard though. Um, because a lot of times what we found is, particularly for parents of children with mental health conditions, you know, you go into the doctor's office and this gets to this point of what you're talking about, I think, in terms of, of the different spaces, right? that transdisciplinary work is important. In the doctor's office, when you ask, the doctor goes, so what brings you here, right? And for many of us, this is the first time we've had a chance, or we are literally, if we're going to see a psychiatrist for a child, we are probably seeing the psychiatrist at the height of a crisis. And when you're in the middle of a crisis, what we'll start telling is this, and then this happened, and this happened. And what we found is that doctors are trained to hear a certain narrative, and they're trained, and they're Pulling and plucking out your story to fit in with a medicalized narrative, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're medical listeners and they're trained to speak that way. They're Mm -hmm. trained to speak that way as residents, but how we speak. And if we're only trained in that way, then we tend to only listen in that way. And a lot gets left on the floor. A lot gets unheard. It's not that it's not said. It's unheard because we're not listening in this broader, more expansive way. We're listening for the knowledge and we're Mm -hmm. listening for the, the little epistemological nuggets that then the doctor can pull out and go, okay, so that means this. And then we add meaning to it. And... For people in, in who interact with our organization, and even myself, for black women, a lot of the meaning that's extracted from my words is not what I mean, and it's mm-hmm. not even my truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes kind of repackaged in this way. So learning how to kind of be in this transdisciplinary space, in this transcultural space, and I love that. I, I want to learn more about the how to be like your work in this um, section in your syllabus on allyship, because I, I think I need to do more with that. But learning how to do that is not just, like you're saying, a social, for social science. It's not just for humanness. But it also, it's really important. I mean, it's, it can be life or death, yep. right? Yep. If you are a medical professional and you, you don't have that capability, you can only hear in the way in which your discipline and in your training allows you to hear, you miss so much particularly when you're working with people who have different epistemological or different epistemologies through which they are communicating.
0: Your example is fantastic there. And it reminded me very recently, I was speaking with a physician who has a number of his patients are trans women Mm -hmm. and trans men. And they come into his office, and they're so used to this narrative being narrowly heard, and so what they end up doing is they consult with another organization mm-hmm. to learn how to say their narrative, similarly to what you're doing. I think it would be really interesting if your organization oh, be. um, because I think there's so much overlap. Um but he said it's easy talking to trans patients now because they come and they literally hand him an index card yeah. of all the things that he's going to need to know because they've been taught how to speak his language mm-hmm. of you know what what's gonna matter. I think it speaks to a bigger issue. It speaks we, to a big issue. We don't we don't teach physicians allyship. We Maybe. don't teach physicians how do you get into someone else's world and talk about a power dynamic? I mean that the medicalized world is one of power dynamics, because mm-hmm. that's when you're you're most vulnerable when you're seeing somebody who's gonna help you with healthcare. But um, I'm seeing projects in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I think that glass of wine is Quite appropriate. We should talk about lots of different things. Yes, Um, Dr. Dion Benson Smith, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being on our show today. Uh, I'm so glad that we got to talk about everything under the sun in the transdisciplinary world, and I hope we have many more of these conversations. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Post Normal Times. Thanks to our guest, and thanks to our support from Claremont Graduate University. If you enjoyed Boundary Crossing with us and want to hear more, make sure you follow us. Spread the word and tune in to our next episode.